pray. Lord, once again, we come to hear your word opened and explained. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to do that through me this morning. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from error and fill us with your truth. And may your truth have the desired effect of creating within us a love for one another. The Apostle Paul said that this was the reason that he taught. The goal of our teaching is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so, Father, would you produce those things in us as a result of hearing your word? May we intentionally and willingly turn over our hearts to whatever your spirit has to say to us, not apart from your word, but through your word. And may you be glorified in the results that you accomplish by your good pleasure, from your book, and by your spirit. These things we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. This morning we return to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm sure you remember Paul wrote this epistle from jail. He wrote it as kind of a thank you note, a letter to his beloved Philippians, this church that he may have loved more than any other church that he had planted. They were doing so well and they were being so faithful. This was kind of a thank you letter to them because of the support that the church of Philippi sent to Paul some 800 miles away, if we've got our geography right, by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus. I think to say that the Philippian church was dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul is a gross understatement. He loved this congregation. Near the beginning of his letter, he says in verse 7 of chapter 1, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. I don't think he said anything like that to the other churches. There was a unique relationship between Paul and these people in Philippi. And then back in in verse 4, he tells them that every time I think of you, I pray for you with joy because of your partnership with me in the gospel. I think that's the key to their relationship. It was a ministry relationship. And they weren't just good buddies and like to talk about you know, the, the latest sports attraction. And they had sports attractions back then. It's where we get Olympics. It comes from the Isthmian Games. They, he knew sports. Someday I'd, I'd like to preach a sermon on, on the athletic mind of the Apostle Paul because it's all over his writings. But they didn't get together to talk about that. That wasn't what bound them together. What bound them together was the gospel. What bound them together was Christ. The reason the Philippians went to such great lengths to send support to Paul was because they had heard that he had been moved, probably, at least my opinion is, he got moved out of his house arrest situation, which was actually pretty comfortable. If you're going to be incarcerated, you might as well be incarcerated in your house. But he got moved from there for some reason that is not explained into the jail. And they were concerned about him. They had heard about this. They were concerned about his personal welfare and the welfare of his ministry. I mean, some had to be saying, it's over. He's not going to survive this. His ministry is over. I mean, how do you minister from jail? But Paul assured them 
that he's being put in the slammer and actually turned out, verse 12, for the advancement of the gospel. The Philippians would have understand, they would have understood Paul's optimistic attitude about this. After all, Paul had personally discipled them and instilled in them a deep sense of gospel urgency. They had that. They were partners with him in the gospel. Their church was the product of Paul's sacrificial ministry when he had visited their homeland two years earlier. And his passion, the passion that he had for the gospel, had become their passion. And that church had grown to the extent that they could support the Apostle Paul from afar. And so now they were partners with him for the advancement of the gospel. For Paul, the center of the Christian life is the gospel. It is, as it were, the blazing center around which everything else in the Christian life finds its proper orbit. The gospel, because the gospel isn't just a doctrine, it's a, it's a person. Christ is the gospel. We don't offer people, when we talk to them about salvation, we don't offer them a system. We're not necessarily offering them a doctrine, at least not in the, as an end in itself, the doctrine is going somewhere. It's taking people to a person. It's taking them to Christ. And so for him, the, the center of everything in the church was the gospel because the center of everything is Christ. Hence he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or if it's the ESV, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's significant to note here that the relevant pronouns in chapters 1 and 2 are plural. And I emphasize this sometimes because we are, we are Americans. We believe in, at least our culture believes, in rugged individualism. That's how our, our land was founded. Everybody is an independent. Everybody, you know, it's, it's me and Jesus You'd go to work in the morning, you'd come home, you'd lower the drawbridge to drive across the moat, you'd pull the drawbridge up, and, uh, and, and you don't talk to anybody anymore until the next day when you lower the drawbridge long enough to get out and go to work. Um, the Apostle Paul had a different idea. It's significant that all of the pronouns are plural because it's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and my Bible. I remember uh, one time my father told me, son, he was embarrassed because I was uh, addressing an issue in his life, and the issue was his relationship with Christ. He thought he knew Christ. As a teenager, I was convinced he didn't know Christ, and you know that story. He came to know Christ here at Calvary many, many years later, decades later, but back then he was lost, and, and I remember him telling me, listen, son, my relationship with Jesus is very, very personal. To which I responded, yes, Dad, good, but it shouldn't be private. It shouldn't be private. It ought to be something that you enjoy with other believers. And so the pronouns are plural, almost every one of them, except for one, which is referring to the individual in the community, and so that's the same as well. And I won't take the time to dive into the grammar of this. And so he's talking about all of us together as a church. And he does that repeatedly. So many of the verses that we've memorized out of Paul's letters, we think it's, it's, 
him writing to me about me and Jesus, when in fact he's, he's writing to us, plural, the church. And so it is here. It is our collective life together as the body of Christ that should be worthy of the gospel. We, not just me, we together should live with one another in such a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. You may ask, um, how do we know if we're doing that? How do we know if we're, abs- if we're doing that? In verse 27, it goes on where he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, watch this, in one spirit, striving side by side for the gospel. What's he talking about? He's talking about unity. Not the kind of artificial, artificial uni- unity that the world wants all the religions to have. Let's just set aside our differences. We can't set aside our differences. We can't. What part of the gospel would you like me to set aside so it's not offensive? We can't set it aside. What Paul is looking for in terms of whether or not, whether or not the life of the Philippian church is worthy of the gospel is this. Are they experiencing the kind of spiritual, the spirit-wrought interpersonal unity that promotes not their church, not their program, not their pastor's blogs, not their church's worship band, not their paradigm, their new paradigm for how to do church ministry, but rather, are they unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are they collectively living in a manner that shows the world what God is like, that shows the world what the gospel is like? Let me ask you, does your marriage show the world what the gospel is like? Does your family show the world what God is like? Does the way you relate to your fellow employees at the office show the world what God is like? Does your interaction with strangers on the street show the world what Jesus is like? It's why we're here. And Paul was so serious about unity. It's amazing. And I'll tell you about how serious in just a minute. His question was, are they collectively living in a manner that shows the world the gospel? Evidently, while this church had a lot going for it, Paul was concerned about the ever-present danger of factions and disunity in the local body. And this is a concern for every faithful church. Um, Sound doctrine is a huge priority. One of the dangers of having a church where sound doctrine is a priority is we can forget about love and unity. And that's why I mentioned in my prayer a little while ago, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. If you don't have a loving church, then something's wrong with the teaching of the doctrine. Something's missing. And I will say again what I said a moment ago, because it's so important. Doctrine is always going somewhere. Theology is always moving us, moving us. It's not just there to fill our heads so that we know more teaching. We know more propositional truth about God. Listen, knowledge, what does knowledge do? Knowledge puffs up. Good King James. Back there I hear someone 
quoting now to the King James. Knowledge puffs up. It makes, what's that mean? It makes us proud by itself. It makes us proud. That's not God's goal for theology. It's always moving us to Christ. I like to say it's theology for doxology. It should always lead us to worship. It should always lead us to love. Or here's another way of saying it. Every doctrine should cause us to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and or your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul wanted to see. And this is what he was afraid of, that in the church, for whatever reason, there would be factions and disunity in the body. And this is the concern of, as I said, every church, whether and wherever there are, are sinners gathered together in one place, there is always a potential for pride to seize hold of hurt feelings, disagreements, conflicting interests, and then turn them into a, an unholy wrecking ball and start slamming at the church, causing devastating consequences to the church. And this kind of thing happens in, in every church from time to time, but woe to those by whom they happen. Woe to those by whom they happen. Listen, with so much talk about unity in our world, I know it's so easy to just kind of say, yeah, whatever, whatever. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But in the church, it should always be happening. It should always be happening. This kind of thing happens, as I said, in every church, but there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it. Factions and disunity have no place in the church. We have the word of God, beloved. We have faithful teaching. We have the indwelling spirit. We have everything we need to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's why Paul is so concerned about the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. Back there in chapter 4, just to review verse 2, when he says, Do I? you can flip your page to the right one time. <laughs> Philippians 4 Verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. <laughs> there is a little fracture that was happening there. And he doesn't tell us what it is. They knew. The leaders of the church apparently knew. He was calling them to step in and counsel these women, help them reconcile. This is why he was so concerned about that. Such a concern that he was willing to put their names in holy writ. So 2,000 years later, we're still hearing about these women by name. How would you like to have one of your sins be put in the Bible? <laughs> oh, that Dan Kirk who, <laughs> whatever. Paul was so serious about unity in the church that he commanded Titus that if there's a man or a woman in the, in the body of Christ, listen to this, if there's a man or a woman in the body of Christ who's causing division, warn them once, warn them twice, kick them out. This is no long disciplinary process. This is get it out. And beloved, the elders of Calvary have been serious about this for years. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's such unity here. We understand, do we not, as members of Calvary Bible Church, that preserving the unity of the Spirit is hugely important to the Apostle Paul because it was important to the Holy Spirit, because it's important to Christ. This is his body. What part of his body is he willing to, to chop off and send in a different direction? Unity 
is important in the body of Christ. And the only thing that keeps us from being unified is self-will and pride. Or another way of saying it is the only thing that um, prevents us from having true unity when it's not happening, it's sin. It's just sin. It's some kind of sin. But here's, here's the wonderful thing. Uh, listen, if, if that's a disease that's causing that problem, I, I can't help you with that. I mean, if it's some kind of psychological thing, I can't help you with that. But if it's a sin problem, there's a cure. There's a cure. Now listen, beloved, I understand that we're going to disagree sometimes. There are going to be some time, look, every, every leader does something that people don't like. You're always pushing forward, always pushing forward, Right? And you cause friction. And there are going to be things in this church that you don't like. And it's going to rub on you the wrong way. It's just going to happen. Look, you know, what, you know what dogs do? Dogs bark. What do sinners do? They sin. And if you're going to be a bunch of sinners and be together, you're going to sin against one another. What do you do? Do you turn it into a big thing? Do you cause a faction in the church? Or do you say... The church is far more important than me getting my way. Or as Brent Osterberg would say, listen, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Or how about this, 1 Corinthians 6. Why not rather be wronged for the sake of Christ? Why not rather be wronged? I mean, so what? So you're mistreated. Who cares? Jesus was mistreated. How did he respond? He responded in a way that was honoring to his father. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Why not rather be wronged for the sake of the gospel? Oh, beloved, this is already a unified church, but we need to be reminded of these things because like the Philippian church, they had all kinds of things really going for them. They were doing a lot right, apparently. Paul loved this church, and yet he was concerned for them. I see Calvary Bible Church much like the church in Philippi. It's healthy. The sheep, the, the, the sheep seem to be healthy, and, and there isn't any division that I know of among us, and I praise God for that. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted in the church. Don't take it for granted in your home. All of this stuff applies to your home as well. And so here in Philippians, Paul is attempting to preempt any problems that may arise through sinful disunity. And I suppose all of that was introduction. <laughs> Why don't you stand with me and let's just read these first five verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. As I said, in this short passage, Paul's concerned about true unity in the church. In verse 1, he speaks of the divine incentives for unity. In verse 2, he points to the essential objectives of unity. And then in verses 3 and 4, he reveals the humble methods of unity. And then in verse 5, he starts in on the example of what it means to live in such a way that brings about this kind of unity in the person of Christ. Let's think about the first one. Right from the start, we can see how Paul's affection for the church of Philippi is directing the manner in which he is calling them to unity. It's a one thing to command it, but Paul's not, he is commanding it, but he's doing it in such a gentle, gracious, kind, Christ-centered manner. It, it, you can't hardly miss it. It's full of tenderness and love. There are four incentives he points to that every believer has experienced. First, he points to the encouragement in Christ, encouragement in Christ. Since you have encouraged, you experience the encouragement of Christ or in Christ. The word for encouragement here is paraklesis, which carries the idea of coming alongside of someone to offer loving comfort, counsel, or correction. And sometimes all three. Comfort, counsel, and correction. And Paul's, Paul's asking, have you, ever been, have you ever been comforted by Christ? Sure you have. Have you ever prayed for wisdom on a perplexing matter and received counsel from God's word? Maybe, maybe through another brother or sister? Well, sure you have. Have you ever received loving correction from the Lord that turned you away from the kind of thinking or behavior that otherwise may have caused you and your family and your church great harm? Of course you have. I have. This is a common experience. This is one of the common experiences of those who are united to Christ. And that's where all of this is coming from. We are mutually united in Christ, hence our unity. We already have unity in Christ. Whether we like each other or not, we have unity. We are the body of Christ. And Paul is appealing to this, this reality that being in the body of Christ means you have a special relationship with Jesus. And one of the things Jesus does for his people is he consoles them. He comforts them. He counsels them. He corrects them. He's not just in heaven barking down his commandments. He's with you. He's with you. Secondly, he mentions comfort from his love. Comfort here is sometimes translated consolation. That's why one of the reasons this passage is hard to memorize. It's because it's one of these lists, and the words seem so synonymous and that's the entire point. Uh, he's just saying the same thing kind of over and over, giving a, a, a little different facet with each one. You have benefited from the comfort of his love. Comfort is sometimes translated consolation. It refers back to the other one. It points to a close relationship marked by genuine concern and helpfulness and love. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, uh, by the way, this, this word, uh, comfort, we, we talked about paraclesis already, but here it is again, a form of that same word. And the Holy Spirit, as you probably already know, 
is referred to sometimes by preachers as the paraclete. He is ultimately the one who comes beside us to help us in our time of need. And Paul's saying, have you ever experienced, have you ever experienced the Lord coming to you in your time of need? Charles Spurgeon, in his inimitable uh, approach to uh, preaching and, and the text, uh, I think that hardly a sermon should go by that we don't quote Spurgeon in some way. Spurgeon says, uh, by the way, uh, Spurgeon was a man who suffered greatly. I think he had three diseases that were painful, and he struggled with them all the time. And plus, he, he was so brilliant he had all of these ministries, nurse, uh, um, orphan homes, and, and a huge church to shepherd, and, and daily writing, uh, it, it seems unbelievable that he would write 50 or more letters a day. And yet here he is with all of his suffering, and he writes this, the Holy Spirit is the comforter, but the comforter is Christ. The Holy Spirit consoles but Christ is the consolation. If I may use a picture, Spurgeon says, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. Paul's appealing to our mutual experience of the tender mercies of Christ when we suffer. Are you sick? Are you lonely even in the midst of a crowd of people like this? Is your heart broken because of loss or disappointment? Are you sick of your sin? Is life just not going the way you had hoped? Oh, my friend, know this. If you are a child of God, by grace, through faith, you are loved and cherished by the Son of God, not passively, but actively. You are actively and daily and moment by moment loved. If you will have sensitivities, to experience it, if you would have spiritual eyes to see it, if you would have a heart to receive it, know this, you are deeply loved and cherished by God. So fly to Christ, fly to Christ before you fly to anyone else or any book or any person. Fly to Christ in prayer and drink in his precious promises. Let him console you with his love. This the common experience of all believers. Third, we have the fellowship in the Spirit. The ESV here reads um, participation, probably not the best translation because the word that is used, that's translated par, uh, participation is koinonia. Clearly it's fellowship. It's talking about fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit. Everything we have from God comes by virtue of our union with Christ, but it is all applied to us practically and experientially by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you, Christ in you. You are indwelt by his Spirit. It is by the Spirit that you have spiritual life. It is by the Spirit that you have spiritual gifts. It is by the Spirit that you have spiritual fruit. And Paul says, even in Romans 8.26, that the Spirit even helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray like we should, 
And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, every aspect of the Christian life, God is there consoling, counseling, correcting, helping, empowering, giving us life. And by the way, even the unity that we have is called by Paul the unity what? The unity of the Spirit. Paul's not calling us to create this unity. It's a unity we already have in Christ. He's calling us to preserve it, to preserve it. And and can I add, enjoy it. That's what he's doing. He's enjoying it, as we're going to see here in a minute. And then there's affection and sympathy. Affection. Uh, This is a funny word. Splagna. Sounds Russian. Um, And uh, its meaning is even... Stranger, it's the bowels. Um, when you have emotion, when you have affection for someone, we say, you know, I feel it in my heart. And they would say, oh, I feel it in my bowels. I have feelings in my bowels for you. <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound good. Um, but if, you know, but if you're Greek, if you're Roman, um, that's what they thought. And it was kind of a metaphor for the emotions And if you read it in the King James, it says, bowels of compassion. It's affection. And it mentions, he he mentions sympathy. It's also translated compassion. So you see how these words overlap in meaning. And you kind of get the idea of what he's saying here. Paul's simply reminding us of the tender, compassionate, personal ministry we all receive by virtue of being children of God. He is a gracious father. And you may say, I don't know what that's like. I I didn't have a father who was like that. If you're in Christ, you do now. You do now. Your identity has changed. You have a father who loves you. You remember when the parents wanted to bring their children to Jesus and the, uh, the disciples were saying, get them out of here. Quit bothering Jesus. And he said, no, 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 let the little children come to me and don't forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. And this is what God says to you. This is what Jesus says to you every day. Come to me. Nothing is stopping you from coming to me. You got a question? Ask. You want my attention? Seek. If I seem like I'm, I'm, I'm distracted, knock. The door's always open. Just come, come and enjoy the consolations Christ. It's yours for you. Every moment, in every temptation, in every trial, in every difficulty, he is for you. He is not against you. All of us have experienced these graces. And again, we should note that the word if, which is in front of all of this, is better translated since. Paul presumes we all have experiential knowledge of the tender ministry of a merciful Lord, and if you haven't, then maybe you don't know him. And if you know him and you don't experience this very much, maybe right now, under the sway of the Holy Spirit, you can can feel him tugging at you. Come on, come on. Quit depriving yourself of the joy that you could have in, in my consolation and care for you. And so Paul is saying, since this is our common experience, 
Since this is our common experience, let it be an incentive to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That phrase is the interpretive key to this whole section. That we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, obedience to God is something believers do, not merely because of the commands, but more, more often it is the fruit of our gratitude towards God's kindness toward us. It's not that we have to obey Christ, it's that we get to. We get to obey him. We get to live in fellowship with him. We get to experience joy, the joy of walking under his lordship. That's where joy is found. You have a father who loves you. You should want to be close to him. You should want to know these things experientially. And Paul is happy with the church of Philippi, apparently. He already rejoices over their faithfulness to the Lord. He already rejoices that they have so much care for him because of the Lord. He's rejoicing because they're partners with him in the gospel. And so his joy, his, his joy bucket is pretty full. But he's saying now, but listen, it, it's, there's still room. There's still room. There's still room for more joy in my bucket. And so he says, verse 2, please complete my joy. Complete my joy. Fill it to the fullest. I went to the gas station this week, and I noticed a sticker I see there all the time at various gas stations where they say, do not top off your tank. You know what that means? It means don't fill it all the way to the top. It could spill, and that could be hazardous to your health. Uh, Paul is saying, forget about that. Top me off. Top me off. You're doing great so far. All I ask is give it one more push, one more push. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. Fill it up. I'm so joyful about you. I love you, church, so much. The only thing I would ask is a little more unity. Come on, come on. Help Yodia and Sintichi. And may my instruction for you to do so remind you that you should be on the lookout for any of that going on. Not to squash it like a bug, but to tenderly come beside you being ministering Christ to them, ministering the word to them as if you were Christ, as if you were God's agent like the Holy Spirit coming beside to encourage, to counsel, and when necessary to correct. This is body life, people. This is body life. This is healthy church stuff. This is a flock that is not only healthy and enjoying being together, but is multiplying and growing. Okay, so we've rehearsed the divine incentives for unity. It took longer than I was expecting. Let's move on. Let's look at the essential objectives for unity. We really don't need to spend a lot of time here because this is obvious. Verse 2 Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. You see, again, kind of a repetition of themes here. Notice three objectives, same mind, same love, same purpose. Being of the same mind means that we go after life in this world as a church like the Philadelphia Eagles hit the field on Super Bowl Sunday. They had one motive, one goal, one attitude, one will, namely to get the ball into the end zone. 
They're not out to hawk their new men's cologne. They're not out to sell hot dogs. It's not why they're on the field. They don't have their own agenda. They're not selling their jersey or copies of their jersey with their name on it. It's not why they're on the field. They're, they're there to hit the football field to win the competition. They want the ring. They want the crown, as Paul would say. To mutually live in a manner worthy of the gospel means that we all have the same mind about the goal. We are all here, listen, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. We live to display Christ and to promote the gospel. We want to see people know Christ we want them to experience the consolations of Christ. And the first consolation anybody receives is forgiveness of all their sins, all their guilt, all their past. And so the first objective is to have the same mind. Secondly, to have the same love. Paul wants us to have a reciprocal love for one another. Remember, Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you love what? One another. If you love one another. You know, any person on the outside of this church on a Sunday morning, if they were to walk into our church with this question, I wonder if these are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Would there be enough evidence through our love for one another and through our love for them? Would there be enough? You remember when the Apostle John wrote his first epistle, he repeatedly declared that if anyone does not love his brother, he or she doesn't belong to God. Because that's the first manifestation. First visible manifestation is you begin loving people. Because the love of Christ is in your heart. Unity comes when we have the same mind and the same love. Thirdly, he says being a full of accord in one mind. The NAS separates these phrases out and it re reads, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, we see the overlap in, in themes here. Whether you divide them up or keep them together, Paul's message is pretty clear, isn't it? He's exhorting us to live in harmony with one another and direct our lives toward this single goal, that Christ and his gospel would be manifest in our lives. Beloved, this is what it looks like to, be, to, to mutually live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It looks like something the world only dreams of and daily talks about. It looks like true unity between people from diverse backgrounds, Jew, Greek, slave, free, black, white, male, female. You know, I look across this congregation and I see people who have come to, come to know Christ from a lot of different ethnicities. And I praise God for that. You know what? Apart from Christ, you and I wouldn't be friends the people you're sitting with probably wouldn't either. But we love one another. Why? Because we're in Christ. We are mutually in Christ, enjoying the union with Christ. Therefore, we love one another. It is unity of mind, unity of love, unity of purpose in life. It's a supernatural unity and one that we freely delight in here at Calvary Bible Church. And so we've considered the divine dis distinctives of unity and the essential objectives of unity, and then finally, the humble methods of unity. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but 
in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Someone has well said, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. Love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. You know the definition of love, right? To love is to give what you have that the other person needs because God wants you to. To love is to give. These two verses offer an example of a, of a Jewish writing device called antithetical parallelism. And for those of you who are into that kind of stuff, this is, this is really exciting stuff. For the rest of you, I won't spend much time. Uh, just note here that um, an antithetical parallelism is when the author is very Jewish and very Old Testament. Um, you find it all, the, all throughout Proverbs and some in Solomon as well, where he makes a statement and then he says, but... And then he flips the coin and shows you the other side. It's a first statement. It's kind of a proposition. And then it's the contrast. And we have two of them here to kind of end this section. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, one another, count others more significant than yourself. This is something that we must put off, and there's something we must put on. Oh, beloved, this is where this text becomes painfully practical. Howard Hendricks in class at Dallas Seminary used to say, well, this is too convicting. And as many times as I've gone over it this week, it, it has led me to kind of prayers of confession to the Lord. I've got some growing to do in this area. If the church is going to enjoy and maintain the kind of unity Paul is calling for, believers must practice radical self-denial rather than worldly self-aggrandizement. We're not here to lift ourselves up. The unity of the Spirit in the local church can only be achieved if each member of the body puts off self-seeking and self-promotion and self-entitlement and puts on a mindset of a slave, puts on the mindset that sees everyone else as more significant than me. The perfect picture of that is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He says, you call me Lord, and you are right. <laughs> Isn't that great? I am your Lord, and I am washing your feet. And you need to do the same thing for one another. I'm your Lord, but I'm treating you as if I am your slave. Jesus comes to us and treats us like he is my household servant. Doulos, slave. We put on the mindset that sees everyone else as more significant. And here's some practical implications and applications. And you should be thinking about this for your small group. 
as well as experiences of the consolation of Christ. I'd, I'd love to hear some of those from your life. But here's just a few that I kind of put on the page. And let's start with me. I should never preach. You know, there's some gifted young men in this church body who can teach and preach, and I learn much from them. I should never preach in order to be viewed as better than any of them. Should never be my ambition. Secondly, one should never sing in this church in such a way as to best someone else's singing. We should never play a musical instrument to draw attention to self. And we should never talk of our children as if they are better than anyone else's children, or our career, or our house, or our property, or our net worth, or our career advancement, or our degrees. Rather, in everything, everything we do as believers, we should seek to exalt Christ and lift others above ourselves. It doesn't mean you don't take a compliment. You just got to know how to do it. And here's how you do it. You say, thank you. Praise the Lord. Lift him up. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's this constantly diverting attention away from us onto him and onto others. Onto others. If you're part of a team, it's all about the team. It's not about you. It's not about you. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul makes it very clear. Let all things be done for edification. You say, what's edification? You ever heard of an edifice? An edifice is something that's being built. Edification simply means building up. You're building others up. Let everything that we do, every choice we make, be for edification, to lift up and help build up other people. Selfish ambition always looks for an angle to elevate self over others. Conceit constantly strains for empty praise. But humility? Well, humility urges us to consider our own insufficiencies and inadequacies and consider others worthy of more honor than ourselves. When I go over to Russia, proper, um, almost any country I've gone to, there's, there's, this, there's this guy who shows up. Uh, he's not coming to see me. He's, he's coming uh, because SGA is there, and I just happen to be with SGA. And his name is, I think it's Yuri. I probably have that wrong. But everywhere we go, he carries our bags, he cooks meals. If there's a problem, he fixes it. If there's a place to go, he drives us there. And I think, wow, this guy must be someone who, I don't know, didn't have anything else to do. They gave him this job to, you know, he's serving in the church, maybe a deacon. Turns out he's a pastor of several churches. He's like one of the key leaders over there in the Baptist Union. And every time I see him, he's carrying my bags. That's what Paul's talking about. 
Selfish ambition has no place. And look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but, here's the antithetical part, also to the interest of others. This is not saying that we should have no self-interest. In fact, uh, God appeals to your self-interest frequently throughout the Bible. It's not that we have no self-interest, but rather that we say, my interests may not be sinful. They, They may be fine. The Lord might join me in another circumstance doing the exact same thing. And yet someone else has an interest that isn't the same as mine. We go with them. We go with them. Paul is saying that our own self-interest should be exceeded by our concern for others' interests whenever possible. Or, or, or try this on for size. Love one another as you what? Love yourself. Do you love yourself? You say, no, I, I don't. Well, I bet if I sat down with you, I could prove that you do. Who brushed your teeth this morning? <laughs> I don't love you that much. <laughs> I brush my own because I love me. Um, who, drove you, who drove you here? Was it you? Why'd you do that? Because you love yourself. And you may have a wrong view of self. You may be looking at yourself instead of Christ, but you love yourself. And what Paul is teaching again and again, the same thing Jesus taught you, it's nothing wrong with loving yourself as long as it drift, doesn't drift into sin, but love your neighbor more. When it comes down to my interest or theirs, think of the Good Samaritan. My interest or his. The priests walked by and said, mine, mine. They'd fit in this culture perfectly. And the Samaritan, who was an outsider, considered an unbeliever and a dog, he came along and he saw the man in the ditch And you think he had self-interest at that moment? Of course he did. But that man's problem was more important. It's the way we should live. It's the way we should treat one another. It's why we hold the door for someone coming through behind us. It's why we offered offered to uh, gather plates after a meal so that other people can enjoy fellowship and not be distracted. We... We offer the other person our seat, the seat that we wanted, or the parking place, or the classroom, or the part in the ensemble, or whatever it is, you you trust the Lord. I remember hearing one preacher say that um, the reason Yodia and Sintichi were divided in the Church of Philippi was because Yodia was the choir director and Sintichi was the women's ministry leader, and they both wanted Fellowship Hall on a particular day. I mean, it can be really petty, and, and often it really is. It's just petty. And then you get your feelings hurt. And then someone sins, and now it's a matter of dignity and conscience that you've got to be justified, and, and it just grows. It might be obvious when someone has real need that we should sacrifice for them, and people in this church come out of the woodwork to help someone who's suffering. But here Paul isn't talking about suffering. He's talking about the other person's interests. They want the seat by the window? Give it. Give it up. You say, well, it's mine. Really? Does it have your name on it? (laughs) That's what my kids always say about the cookie, right? It's got your name on it? 
It's not yours. It's God's. Paul is speaking of interests. Paul wants the level of our humility and our love for others to be so profound that, that real needs, of course we're going to meet those real needs. Interests? You willing to give up your interests? What are we learning here? Paul's teaching us what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I said, this is the interpretive key to this whole section. He's teaching us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. People who eagerly receive the daily unmerited grace of God on themselves should constantly pour out unmerited grace of God on others. And that means we regularly deny self in order to serve one another. We regularly deny our own interests so that other people's interests are being served. You know what that would do to your family? Children, do you know what you do that in, in, in your relationship with your siblings? Our kids laugh because I told them the story one time of uh, two kids who were fighting and the mom comes in and says, uh, listen, I know you're fighting over that toy. If, if, if you were Jesus, you would, you would give it to the other person. And the mom walks out and one boy says to the other, you be Jesus. <laughs> So from some of the earliest years, I'd hear my kids, you know, tugging on a toy or something, and then they'd stop, and one of them would say, you be Jesus. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have taught, what have I done? <laughs> okay, you want to know what this dynamic looks like? In case we haven't taken it to an uncomfortable level enough. And I'll just give you a taste of this, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind that he's all along been telling us we should have. The mind that produces unity in the local church where it's not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus. And though we're sinners, we, try, we rub each other the wrong way, yet we're never going to let that affect our unity. We're going to say, why not rather be wronged? Or listen, my rights are not my rights, they're your rights. My desires are not my desires, they're God's desires. And so let's do things your way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Get it? You are in Christ Jesus. If you are in him, his mind is already yours. His way of thinking is already yours. You just have to bring it to bear on the next issue. You already know what to do. And you know what? There's joy in doing it God's way. There's nothing but frustration and conflict doing it your way. You say, are you calling for pacifism? Listen, you can call Jesus all kinds of things, but don't call him passive. There was not a passive bone in his body. This was actively, purposefully, intentionally giving up his glory for our sakes. He became poor so that we can become rich. This is what it means to live as a church and as a family in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I, I assume that there are people who are hearing my voice right now who 
are touched by the grace of God and who desperately need to be born again. And so, Lord, I pray, would you so move in their hearts as to convict them of the sin of self-sufficiency and an unwillingness to bring themselves under your rule, your gracious, kind, merciful, eternal, life-giving rule. May they turn their back on all of their own righteousness. May they run to Christ with nothing in their hands. May they offer Christ nothing but their sin. May they cry out to you in faith to ask for you to receive them. And Lord, would you save them? Would you cause them to be born again unto a living hope? Would you transform them from the inside out? Lord, we know only you can. And Lord, for this church, I pray, would you, by your grace, preserve the unity that's here? Lord, I, I just can't finish this sermon without thanking you. Thanking you for this church. Thanking you for the unity that you have you've given us. It's a fragile thing, and, and we don't want to break it. And so, Father, help us, we pray. And may you be glorified in the joy that we have in serving one another and setting aside our own interests for the interest of others. And may Jesus and his gospel be magnified, we pray in Jesus' name.